On August 30th of this year, the United States Armed Forces completed their withdrawal from Afghanistan, marking the end of a 20-year war. The final phase began with the Trump administration's July 2020 drawdown from 13,000 U.S. forces to 8,600 troops, a drawdown from 2,500 U.S. forces at the beginning of the Biden administration to just 650 troops by late summer 2020. And then, following a rapid series of Taliban victories throughout the country and, and even into the capital city of Kabul, far exceeding our military and intelligence estimates, an escalation to 7,000 troops to help end the conflict with relative order. And then, really, abandonment. We can all recall chaotic, sickening runway images of Afghan men clutching to the sides of a U.S. Air Force C-17, desperate for freedom, only to drop to their death from the air several hundred feet off the ground. At least 1,000 U.S. citizens and Afghans with U.S. or other Western visas were held up by the Taliban as the U.S. government failed to authorize their departure. Local translators, village-based allies of NATO forces, young Afghan women just underway in their schooling, they were devastated. Which brings us to today's conversation, one that could be likened at times to a locker room debrief reviewing why, why, did we lose that 20-year war so very badly with the strongest military by far that the world has ever known? Dr. Paul Miller is a professor of international affairs at Georgetown's School of Foreign Service and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. As a practitioner, Paul served as director of Afghanistan and Pakistan on the National Security Council staff and as a CIA analyst and later an intelligence officer in the U.S. Army serving in Iraq. We discuss in part his newest book, Just War and Ordered Liberty, which reinterprets and applies the just war tradition to real-world challenges. Nadine Menza chairs the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, where she brings to bear two decades of experience as an advocate for working families and champion of international religious freedom. She also leads Patriot Voices and has represented the commission in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Myanmar, Bahrain, Indonesia, Iraq, Azerbaijan, Thailand, Taiwan, and Uzbekistan, and has developed close ties with on-the-ground faith communities in Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, and Bangladesh. She just recently returned from a month in northeast Syria. Paul and Nadine each say there's cause for appropriate disillusionment right now. Is America simply pulling back from the entire Middle East? Are we souring on the possibility of advancing and not merely enjoying the benefits of global democracy, human rights, and the political economic conditions we knew to have been so precious after the great wars of the 20th century. On the other hand, as Nadine cautions, there are examples of places that are advancing pluralism and liberal democracy in healthy ways. Uzbekistan, for example. Young people in many parts of the world are on fire for justice, a dynamic that cuts across national lines and can be harnessed, even institutionally. From her travels, Nadine asks, might our task be to better find ways that strengthen ordered liberty, such that from start to finish, it squares with the kinds of yearnings and priorities maintained by local men and women who must fuel it when we leave? This simple paradigm, well known to Americans, Afghans, Iraqis, and others involved in those recent conflicts, is of course easier said than done. We know with sobriety that no democratic republic is guaranteed to coast along without fail on autopilot. 
that the possibility of losing our first freedoms is always present, and that we should probably be more concerned than we are amidst our raging and at times quite legitimate public debates about vaccines and race, campus culture and woke journalism alike, that we may someday sooner than we think be called upon to defend our democracy against rising threats. Here's Paul Miller. Well, I mean, I look, I gave a talk this morning. Somebody challenged me on uh, defense spending and said, why do we need to spend so much money? And I told him, because we're going to lose a war with China tomorrow. You know, s- straight up, the, I think the Chinese military could defeat us in the Pacific tomorrow in a short war. And then the question is, would we actually try? Would we try to fight back in a longer, bigger war? Would we escalate? And I don't know the answer to that question. We can hope to never have to answer that question in our lifetimes, but it's entirely possible we may. That should concern us. It should humble us to the core. And after what only feels like a defeat we chose to undertake in Afghanistan, these insights from a scholar soldier and well-connected commissioner raise deeper questions about American engagement that are not going away. Enjoy the conversation. You know, what I was going to say, kind of coming out of September 11th, you know, in us, that sense that, like, you know, we needed to go to war, we needed to, to right a wrong, and, and it just seems so just. And here we are now, you know, and I, I've spent a lot of time in Iraq and Syria, and now we have Afghanistan, and how, <laughs> seemed like such a just thing to do. Why are we here? You know, to me, I, when I was reading, reading some of the stuff you've done, and I downloaded your book, I mean, to me, it was like, I just want to understand how did we miss, how do we end up here? Well, uh, how long you got? <laughs> Look, I, I've, I've been joking for a long time that the United States never missed an opportunity to make a mistake in Afghanistan. So how did we get to where we are today? We got here through a couple decades of pretty consistent, I think, strategic and even moral miscalculation about what the war in Afghanistan w- was about or should have been about and how we should have fought it. Just war aims at a better peace. When thinking about the war in Afghanistan, you know, President Biden said, mission accomplished, we got bin Laden. In his view, the war was a, was a war of revenge to get bin Laden, to kill him, put him six feet under. And now that that's done, he feels we are off the hook morally and we can leave. I disagree with that characterization of the war, both strategically and morally. I think the war should have, must have aimed at something more than revenge, more than bloodlust. Strategically, it makes sense. We had to leave something in place in Afghanistan that could deny safe haven to terrorists after we left, right? We failed to do that. And so now strategically, we're in a worse position. But morally, I'd make the same case. We were obligated after overthrowing a government to then help build something that could build the conditions of lasting justice and peace. That's what just war is. Just war always obligates the warrior to, to do the aftermath. In recent decades, scholars have talked about use postbellum, justice after war. The way you end a war is part of the justice of that war. And I think in, in Afghanistan, and I'd say Iraq as well, and I'd throw in Libya as well, um, we really failed to do that. We unleashed a lot of violence. We killed a lot of people. I generally think for the most part, we're pretty discriminating in who we kill. But let's not kid ourselves that killing is intrinsically good. It's obviously not. It's it, it might be instrumentally good if it leads to better justice and peace in the long run. But we failed to make all the killing add up to greater justice and peace. And so 
that's how we ended up where we are in Afghanistan. I can give you a more specific answer of specific policy decisions I think were mistaken along the way, but that's my kind of philosophical and theological answer. Well, you know, coming from a religious freedom standpoint, you know, I, I guess we look past just the, the military action to, to try to end up in a place where human rights, religious freedom, all of these rights that are interconnected are, are going to be practiced. So, so the, so at the end of the day, it seems looking when there's military action, the hope is at the end of that will be these human rights, these religious freedom, a better quality of life. And it seems that governance has a lot to do with that. And, and when I'm hearing people talk about military action and talk about what we've done in some of these countries, it seems like the governance part has not been the priority and it's been almost an afterthought, like, oh, we'll just set something up and get the right guy. We're always looking for the right guy, never the right system or, or, or necessarily a process, but, but a guy, the right person that we can trust to be in charge of this government. And to me, that as somebody that is concerned about rights, it seems like sometimes that is, is, is too, too late down the line when they start that to actually have a government that has legitimacy that, that people are going to follow, that's going to create the kind of conditions you would hope we would have in a place like Iraq and Afghanistan that we currently really don't. And I think part of the reason is because as soon as we start talking about building institutions and really changing the political culture of a place to be more respectful of religious freedom, women's rights, as soon as we begin that conversation, you know what the criticism is. Um, that's nation building, that's imperialism, that's for, for forcing a Western model on another country where it maybe isn't fit. And so it's an uphill battle to fight against that criticism all the time. I don't think there's much merit to those criticisms, but it's such a persistent line of attack that you have to respond to it kind of domestically at home while fighting a war abroad. And it can be extremely difficult to do that and do it well. I agree with you to do this well does require attention to institutional development, long-term development, reconstruction, stabilization. I think one of the problems we ran into in Afghanistan, probably Iraq as well, is that U.S. policymakers have a fairly short-term view of what success means, right? We're going to whack the bad guys and maybe cobble together a good enough government that can barely totter forward so we can leave. And so the steps we take to build such a government are pretty, we cut a lot of corners. We don't do the institution building. And if we were more strategic about it, we would also be more moral about it and we would invest for the long term. In Afghanistan, we spent 20 years there. Isn't that long enough? Well, what actually happened is we spent five years from 2001 to 2006 killing a lot of bad guys. And then we suddenly realized, oh my gosh, we're actually fighting a, an insurgency. We need to do counterinsurgency, which is expensive. And we kind of panicked. And for four years, we dumped a ton of money on the place in the hope that we could, in short order, unleash government out of a box and pave roads and build schools and hook up power lines all at once. And when it didn't work out, after 20, by 2011, we gave up. And we're like, okay, we're not going to do this anymore. And we spent the next 10 years just whacking terrorists and training the Afghan army. And so you have this kind of very short-term framework, first of just killing bad guys, then expecting that you can do nation building in about two or three years, and then quickly giving up. And so, I, again, I see a lot of strategic incoherence there that also led to a essentially an immoral, unjust outcome. Hmm. It calls to mind a little bit that line from the end of the movie, Charles, Charlie, Charlie Wilson's War. You know, we did some things the right way we wanted to do and we effed up the end game, right? 
that you end badly. And I've been thinking about that a little bit, Paul, after reading a couple pieces you've written. E- even in the biblical language, there's this idea that that most people don't finish well. You think of the greats, but that they would finish well, but a lot of them don't, actually. When you do the, the, the historical look, two-thirds, in fact, they say, of the Old Testament leaders don't finish well, and New Testament, I think, as well. But it's a case made in uh, a book. I'm curious as to how your own exposure on the ground, Paul, you in military service, Nadine, you on the commission traveling sometimes, makes you think about possibilities for you know, these conditions for liberty, as you're saying in the book, or ordered liberty. Is it expected or is it the exception? Some people say it's, it's not to be expected. It's possible, but it's a lot of work to get there. How do you see the possibility of it working and finishing well? You know, in my, in my travels in recent years, the most stunning change for me has been the time I spent on the ground in Northeast Syria that I'm well known for, for speaking about in different circles. And because what happened there is, you know, the focus has been on this military action and even even them themselves would only talk about the fact that the Syrian Democratic Forces had, had sacrificed 11,000 lives fighting ISIS. And, you know, they had been the U.S. partners doing this great work. And, and the, the, the one thing that wasn't ever talked about was the fact that he built this governance that created the best religious freedom conditions in, in gender equality in the Middle East. And when I first joined the commission, I first learned about Northeast Syria. And then once Turkey invaded, I went and saw for myself what the conditions were and how that played out and, and how they built this like when no one was paying attention, no one's giving them bags of cash. And people would always talk about how all these bags of cash would go to Iraq. None of it would come to Syria. And so and people in Northeast Syria are building this with nothing. And here, you know, they have millions in Iraq and, and, and nothing's getting done. And in the meantime, they're building these the governance that's really it's like a, an extreme democracy almost. It's from the grassroots up where they have these communes with like you know, like a hundred families and, 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 and then they put several of those together and it makes a, a, a sub-district and several of those together, a district. And you have these like co-chairs in, in the co-chairs are always a different, um, a man and a woman co-chair is different ethnicity and religion. So you'll have, you know, co-chairs being, um, an Arab and a, a, a Kurd, and then maybe the vice chairs will be a Circassian and a Turkmen or a Christian and Yazidi. So you have this mixture going on the whole way up through this this entire governance. And, and so they're building this, literally the U.S. isn't interacting with it at all. They're not even acknowledging that it exists. They're almost pretending like it's not because then they'll have a responsibility. It's just easier to not deal with it. So they only deal with the military. The military is the only one that talks to the press. Everyone knows about this. And you're I'm on the ground here like, wait, they, they did something here that, that's working. And, and we all this talk about stopping forever wars, like, isn't this how you do it? You actually build something that can hold the ground. You want, so you don't have to come back and do it again. And it seems like we want to end forever wars pulling out the military, but if there's not something to hold the ground, it seems like we're going to find ourselves in the same situation we were before we went back in. And and so while you know the, it's certainly not a perfect project, no one's suggesting it isn't. To me, it's such a huge contrast to see that and now see what's happening in Afghanistan, where literally the leader gets on a plane with millions of dollars and flies off, and the people fighting, you know, put their weapons down, and it, you just don't see that same sort of environment in a place where, where people had obviously the freedom to, to build something that has legitimacy, that, that protects, you know, human rights from the, the very grassroots all the way up. Josh, you asked, you know, is it possible? How, how can we do this? How can we build conditions of peace and justice and order? Nadine, I agree with everything you said. Right now is a moment when I'm feeling more skeptical, even cynical about our ability to do that because of the record of the past 20 years. Now, this is a bit of recency bias on my part because I'm looking only at the last 20 years. I'm saying, gosh, what a record of failure. 
And I'm feeling personally wounded and hurt and angry about it because I was a part of so much of this. But really the consistent record of bad choices and I think moral callousness speaks for itself. So I have to remind myself of a bit of history. After World War I, the United States was on the winning side of that war and had some idea of what the post-war peace should look like. But that peace included a victor's justice, demand for reparations on Germany. And it did not include reconstruction and stabilization. It did not include magnanimity towards our former enemies. It, it, was, it, was, a, it was a vengeful peace. And we know what happened, right? So after World War II, the Allies took a very different approach. And it seems like it took a total war to teach the lesson that we do have to invest in conditions of lasting peace and justice. And we stayed in Germany for 10 years and in Japan for seven years after World War II. Of course, our military forces are still there, but we stayed and governed and, re and rebuilt for the better part of a decade in both places. That's an example of when we got it right. Is that what it takes for us to really internalize the importance of building conditions of lasting peace and justice? I hope not. I hope we're capable of approaching foreign policy problems more proactively, more thoughtfully, and more morally without the experience of two total wars in the immediate preceding years. Um, because I would hate for it to be true that we're always going to do the wrong thing unless and until we fight and win a world war back to back. I was going to ask you to maybe push back on my cynicism a little bit. A am I wrong to be so pessimistic right now? Are there islands of success, either successful implementation on the ground or successful decision-making in Washington where maybe out, out of the limelight, off the headlines, you see examples of policymakers actually thinking through these issues in the right way, making decisions that are in a way that is that has forethought that is thinking ahead into the future, thinking long-term, and also thinking about peace and justice and not just short-term interest. I, I wish I could push back on you, but, but my experience has been that it seems we approach foreign policy in election year bits. So, you know, two, every two years we're getting ready for an election. So you have two years of, of policy and then two years of getting ready for an election and then, you know, kind of on a four-year presidential cycle where, you know, these other countries, China, Russia, Iran, they have these 25-year horizons, Turkey, and are making decisions very differently than we are. So you see these pulling troops in, pulling them out, using different language about the troops that are there to try to create these political environments that are beneficial to the policymakers who are having to run for election or re-election. And that is a a problem <laughs> with how we approach long-term investments in these communities and, and the impact that it has on the people that live there and the stability of these important parts of the world. I think that the, the, the reason that it worked in Northeast Syria to build something with legitimacy that has these amazing conditions for human rights is because it was done by accident in the sense that the U.S. wasn't involving themselves in it. So they, they, they didn't mess it up. They didn't <laughs> go in and decide it needed to be a certain way. We've all heard the stories of Iraq, for instance, when they're writing the constitution that the U.S. insisted it be an Islamic constitution when no one had suggested that on the ground and nor did they necessarily want that. And now, of course, looking back, there's a thought that it would have been better had it, it been a more pluralistic approach. You know, so we, we so often times will insert our own views into the way something should 
should be because it's our way of doing things. And and if it doesn't work for the people and if it's not theirs, they don't own it, then they're not going to fight for it. They're not, they don't have that buy-in. And so I, I feel like we, we don't have that long-term approach with, with foreign policy. And so I, yeah, I also am, am discouraged by the way I've seen things play out in my years in Washington. But, but having said that, I also think a lot of the things you say are very encouraging. For instance, you know, so many people that deal with the Middle East at all think that there's no way forward except a complete disaster. It's always going to be war. It's always going to be difficult, you know, and, and you write about, you know, that there is a way for these just wars to have an Indian peace, to have stability for long term, and that to just accept that it's always going to be this way. It doesn't have to be that way, even though it is right now, clearly it is right now. But how, how do we get past that then? Well, you're pessimistic in real life. You do know that there is a way forward that would work. But I don't think most people understand that or, or even would believe that. So I'd love to know how you would present that to someone who's either never heard or really thinks there's no way for a lasting peace. You know, some of the language you use there is reminding, I feel like you're using my words against me. <laughs> <laughs> Because I wrote, I wrote an article about how Afghanistan did not have to end this way. And my whole argument was to push back on the narrative that, that this was inevitable, that the fall of Kabul and the American retreat was inevitable. That's what President Biden has claimed. And frankly, I think President Trump agreed, so let's be bipartisan about it. I think there's been this, this sense that Afghanistan was sort of doomed and uh, had to end this way. But in my view, that was actually a self-fulfilling prophecy. The, the very prophecy helped bring it about, bring about the situation that it, it, it warned about. I, I don't think the war in Afghanistan had been lost up until the president made the decision to leave. And then, and then it, indeed, it was lost. So, you know, let's remember the specific policy decisions that led us to this point, not just Biden's withdrawal, but also Trump's peace deal. And even before that, I'd, I'd point the finger at President Obama's decision to announce withdrawal timetables in advance. I think that was just catastrophically, strategically unhelpful. I'd even say President Bush's original decision to go in with a light footprint laid the groundwork for some of the later difficulties that came came along. Those None of those were inevitabilities. All of those could have gone differently. All of those were specific conscious policy decisions that presidents could have made differently. And of course, the decision to go to war in Iraq in the first place was another decision. Maybe I need to keep my own pessimism in check by reminding myself of that. It didn't have to end this way. And, and these decisions could have gone differently. And we'd be having a very different conversation right now. You know, I mentioned recency bias. I think sometimes we can get fatalistic about how history has played out. Things played out this way, therefore it always had to have played out that way. Of course, that's not true. We all know that contingency chance and individual choice matters a lot in history. And in Afghanistan, lots of things could have gone a different way. Can I ask a, a question that maybe pulls on the religious threads a little bit here? I remember reading in the papers that I think 90% of Afghanistan is Sunni and about 10% is Shia in Syria, I think it's like 87% are Muslim. Of those three quarters or so are Sunni, but then you got 13% that are Shia, you got 11% that are Alawite, 1% that's really small minority. Yeah. Pluralism is a thing in this part of the world. And a lot of our faith angle conversations to date that listeners have heard have, have rallied around the fact that, like, you know, this, this prior hegemonic majority is suddenly finding itself to be a minority. And that's a process. It's a lot of work. It's painful. It's scary. It's psychologically challenging and it's, it takes some getting used to. But there's also a benefit from it, right? Like learning from Orthodox Jews and from 
Mormons about their experience of America is good for evangelicals and for Catholics. And so, you know, I guess I'm curious to ask, knowing that you can't say everything about, you know, sensitive issues, but like, is, is that element of religious pluralism in play also? I mean, what was the best we could have potentially hoped for, for a, an outcome in Afghanistan that has to do with, you know, with that minority, you know, Shia community? It's fair to say that the Taliban's really harsh view of Islam, um, their, their strict interpretation that does not represent the average person of faith in that country. So while, you know, that may not seem like there's pluralism in the sense that it's a majority Muslim country, uh, they still represent a, a, a pretty extreme part of that. And I think that that's what we've seen in some other parts of the world too. But once, you know, if they're in a position of power, then of course it changes everything. So to me, there's still that hope of pluralism because there, there was some history of that. And certainly, you know, so with gender equality, the change happening in the country with, with more and more women being in positions you know, of power and, and in arts and in, in different positions as journalists and, and how, of course, that has changed drastically as well. Yeah, there was some comment that a general made, as I understand it, from a Western European country, from NATO recently. You may have seen this where he basically said, like, we can see what's coming, you know, in the in the next 10 years, China's rising. And when it rises, you guys back in the United States aren't, your kids aren't ready to defend liberal democracy. Your country's not ready to defend pluralism and liberal democracy. You're just not. Like we don't we don't see it. And that that was a very sobering warning about maybe what we're seeing playing out here and the sort of discouraging elements. Would you push back on that? Is that true? Well, I mean, I look, I gave a talk this morning. Somebody challenged me on uh, defense spending and said, Why do we need to spend so much money? And I told him, Because we're gonna lose a war with China tomorrow. You know, s- straight up the I think the Chinese military could defeat us in the Pacific tomorrow in a short war. And then the question is, would we actually try? Would we try to fight back in a longer, bigger war? Would we escalate? And I don't know the answer to that question. And so I think what you're getting at, Josh, is is correct. Not just the United States, but does the free world have the the will, the intent, the desire to defend us, to defend itself. It's our way of life. I I don't know. You you know, as well as I, the public opinion polls show that democracy and free speech have less support now than essentially ever before in American history, right? The younger generations simply don't value it the way the older generations do. Play that scenario out and you ask yourself, would, uh, you know, the next generation of Americans go to fight a war to defend the liberty of Taiwan? or Latvia, I can play out the scenario and explain why I think that the answer should be yes, that we should defend the free world wherever it exists. But I don't think most Americans agree with that right now. We now have three presidents in a row who have talked to us about the need to pull back, do less in the world. I see where that trend line goes. And I think it's probably unhelpful for the bigger for the bigger picture. You know, I think I would push back a little bit on that in that young people today are, are more global than they've ever been is, is, is the average, you know, teenager is connected probably with people around the world, has friends in another continent, reads tweets from their favorite, you know, journalists in a, a developing country who think about life for others in a way that we never did when we were growing up. We, we all we knew was, was the American way of life and didn't understand how, how different the world is. So 
I think what you have is, is you know, you have um, the Hunger Games generation. You really do have a generation of human rights activists. They understand justice and 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 their focus on justice sometimes is is so great that that they're almost willing to give up a little bit of freedom to have justice. So that means somebody is, you know, using words they shouldn't use. They shouldn't be allowed to say that because of, you know, the implications to that that community. So I think there's a balance there that that maybe isn't always right where it should be. But I think what you have are people, a, a generation that cares about justice. And so to them, I think watching Afghanistan is breaking their heart because they're seeing the women that were standing up for their rights that have now just lost them and 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 see things that a change that that is is really hitting home for them. So I would hope that as this generation grows and becomes more mature and and comes to see those rights being challenged here at home that they would be willing to fight for them. But it is a different way of approaching freedoms than our generation would have fought for, for sure. So at each kind of international crisis, I wonder could this be the rebirth of internationalism? I remember during the Syrian refugee crisis, I think it was 2015, we all remember the photograph of that of that poor boy on the beach. And there was such an outcry and people were demanding that we do something. And I thought, okay, maybe people are recognizing the importance of global engagement, blah, blah, blah. And it went away. There was nothing. We didn't do anything. And, you know, the headlines over Afghanistan have been pretty bad for the last month. And it's interesting to see that people seem to care when... I, I'm trying to be tactful about this, but they didn't care for the past 20 years. And are they going to care next month? And here you're hearing perhaps a bit of bitterness in my voice because I've been banging on the drum for so long and it feels like it just didn't, you know, and we all know what, how it ended. So I just shared my view of our short-term decision-making process and how that led to such strategic incoherence in Afghanistan. And I guess what I'm saying is I think that short-termism it seems to be embedded in how we consume our news, how we think about the world, what things we care about. Today, we care about the Syrian refugees, but not tomorrow. And the next day after that, we care about some other crisis, but not the next day. And so it's the kids around the soccer ball effect, right? Everybody's going to rush to the flashy new cause. This is a, a podcast about faith and politics. I think people of faith should try to take a step back and work for a longer term vision, understanding that we're not going to build the kingdom of God on earth today, tomorrow, never. We will never build the kingdom of God on this earth. But what we can do is try patiently to work for better justice and better peace, perhaps not even in our lifetimes, but maybe our efforts will bear fruit over the longer term. How long did abolitionist, abolitionism take to, to succeed? It was generations. There were many people who gave their entire lives to that effort and never saw it succeed, and they thought it failed. And then one day it succeeded. And so maybe that's a the mindset with which we need to go in to our, our political advocacy. It's our job to patiently cultivate the, the soil of our political systems. And if there's fruit, there's fruit. And if there's not, you know, we pass it off to the next generation. You know, we've been chatting earlier about kids with iPhones and managing their Instagram account and trying to stay current and stay appealing and attractive to all their friends. And it strikes me that we can, you know, engage with the news that way, too. And politattainment is what we're all about. And 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 yet, Nadine, you have a cause in the work of religious freedom that that is one of the brighter light enduring causes that that won't be unfashionable in 40 years. 
I'm curious to, to get a sense. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about like, what's the commission do? Uh, how does it make religious freedom a, a, an attractive concept for especially young people as well? How's that factor into foreign policy and State Department? Sure. So, so the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom was created 20, I guess it would be 23 years ago now, at the same time that the Office of International Religious Freedom was created in the State Department with the ambassador position. But we were created to be independent of the U.S. government. So we're a government agency. We're actually under Congress, not the administration. And, and, and we're independent. So we assess religious freedom conditions on our own. We do trips. We have researchers. We um, do all sorts of ways of accumulating information. And then we we turn back at our own government and make recommendations of the president, secretary of state, and the Congress. We have nine commissioners appointed by the White House, as well as the Republican and Democratic leaders of the House and the Senate. And we have about a staff of 20. And so we are the most vibrant, bipartisan um, group of people you will ever meet. We have literally people from the far left, the far right, sitting next to each other and never finding a partisan division in our work. It's really an astounding thing. When we do have divisions, it's never cut that way because human rights, religious freedom is, it just doesn't matter what you think on all these other issues domestically. At the end of the day, we all believe in the, in the same values. And, and so it's, an ex, it's a powerful place to be able to do work. It's compelling in that, unfortunately, religious freedom conditions have deteriorated around the world over um, the last decade. And so you see places like China in particular, who's, you know, you know what the situation with the Uyghurs, which is just horrific, where they have over a million, maybe 3 million in, in camps and in, in forced labor and are continuing to oppress every religious community, but also exporting that to other countries. And so that's what you're seeing as well is, is more countries being encouraged to follow some bad trends. And, and of course, the U.S. has always been a light for religious freedom. And certainly there are plenty of countries that stand along with us that also are fighting for religious freedom. So it's important because it's, it's so easy for us to make religious freedom a part of our foreign policy. It's really not a difficult thing to sit down with a country and say, yes, we will share our weapons with you, but we want you to allow people to be able to practice their faith and and and, and, and have some demands. If we're going to be supporting other countries in, in all the different ways we can, there's no reason why we can't encourage and um, come alongside with them. And, and, and a lot of times it's a change in the, in the, in the way that they see the world that having religious freedom conditions actually makes a country more prosperous makes it more stable. You know, we've seen extremism, of course, growing around the world and, and it's, it's government's inclination is often to push down on religions and be tight on them. And that will stop it. What actually has the opposite effect. So, you know, to try to, to bring good information, good research to different situations, but also to be respectful of the different cultures and the different countries and the journeys they've had and to not expect anybody we don't ever compare to the U.S. It's always an international standard, you know, and knowing that everyone has a different walk. So you can't come in and say, oh, you got to do it our way and, and understand that like I, Uzbekistan is a perfect example of a country that, you know, just a couple of years ago was boiling people in oil and now is off the country that, can, you know, countries of particular concern list, the special watch list of the State Department. There, We still recommend them to be on the special watch list, but they have made such great progress in, in such a short amount of time being very proactive to try to free up space for people to practice their faith. And because of that, they're becoming more prosperous. There's, their birth rate is up, their economy is up. You know, there's all these good things happening because they're creating an environment that allows people to practice their faith. Well, I think that was the good news I was looking for, the examples of <laughs> success. No, it's good It's good to hear that there is an example of a country, Uzbekistan, who, that has actually changed for the better. Um, and maybe this is a good example as well of the long patient effort. The commission, your commission has been around for, as you said, almost a quarter century. 
it's largely off the headlines and maybe that actually helps its work because you're able to work in a slow, quiet, patient way to advocate for important universal values. And I've read some of the case studies of the commission's work in like Vietnam and Turkmenistan. And I know the sort of diplomacy it's able to do a lot of times behind closed doors can make a real difference in people's lives on the ground. And and you mentioned how religious freedom is correlated with other outcomes. It's absolutely true. There's this great book, the title of which I'm forgetting, that really establishes the correlation between religious freedom and kind of all other indices of flourishing. When countries crack down and deny religious freedom, they kind of show their character. And if they're if they're aggressive and murderous towards their own people, you can almost expect that sooner or later, they're going to turn that attention outwards. And you'll see that aggression and that sort of tyranny towards other countries. And so religious freedom correlates with, and sometimes perhaps even causes either stability or uh, instability and aggression. On the other hand, your work is so important. I love hearing that there are examples of success. That's, uh, that's good for my soul to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, we definitely want more success. That's for sure. <laughs> and you, and you mentioned that you guys answer to Congress and you think of the commission being, you know, politically affiliated, but is there any connection between the commission's, you know, norms and goals with economics. I think about the fact that the country's maybe, what is it, 4% of the world's population and 22.5% of the world's GDP or total economic output, you know. So we have a disproportionate economic footprint in the world. Is there any interaction with big companies that are doing business in these places? Some bad, some Yeah, I do know there are some leaders in the religious freedom world that are working on the business side of things. I think of Brian Graham in particular, who's been done some great work with businesses and religious freedom and, and even having cultures in the businesses that have uh, strong religious freedom components. And and since so many of them are working overseas as well. So there, there definitely is that correlation. We, we speak a lot about the, the economic benefits of having religious freedom cultures. And you certainly can see that when you just look at a list of countries that you know, violate religious freedom. I'm, you know, looking through like we have, we recommend countries to be on the country particular concern list with the State Department. Those would be the the worst violators of religious freedom. And you can kind of guess who those are. It's Burma, China, Eritrea, India, Iran, Iran, Nigeria, North Korea. And of course you have some that have stronger economies than others. But but some of them that that are their economy would be doing even better if they had better religious freedom conditions. And it was actually Brian's book I was thinking of, Brian Grimm. The Price of Freedom Denied, uh, such a great book on the importance of religious freedom and its effect on international stability. So in, in looking at recent history, one of the biggest disappointments from a religious freedom standpoint is really the fact that mass atrocities happen. We don't call them genocide. We ignore them as they're rising. And then even sometimes after the fact that uh, they're not called genocide, but, but we, we have this focus on never again, a focus on stopping genocides, yet our history, we can't seem to get ahead of that. Is, is there a way that the military monitors these things as well as religious freedom groups? And like right now, I'm thinking, obviously, we've, we've called the genocide in, in, against the Uyghurs in China genocide. The U.S. has designated it. UNES, U.S. has not designated the violence against Rohingyas in, in Burma as genocide even though the UN said it had genocidal intent. And, you know, of course, we had the genocide against Christians, Yazidis, and Shias in 2014 in Iraq and Syria. But there are other places in the world where you see hotspots that the potential of something happening, and it's hard to get the world's attention. So I believe there is at least one effort to monitor 
these before they happen, government funded, but undertaken by academia, the Political Instability Task Force, great effort to collect data on what they call adverse regime change over the course of decades and decades. And they look at mass atrocities, genocide, but also coups and other things. And a very interesting finding, they found that one of the uh, most accurate uh, sort of proxy variables that indicates when some kind of adverse regime change event may happen is infant mortality. Why that? Because when you have a very high infant mortality, all kinds of other bad things have to have to have happened. Your society is failing at a fundamental level if you can't care for pregnant mothers and newborn infants. Your healthcare system is bad. Your basic education and nutrition and sanitation is bad. All these things are failing and collapsing, which is precisely the circumstance in which an adverse regime change event may happen, including a mass atrocity. So that was an interesting finding that countries with high infant mortality are more at risk for these kinds of things. I think part of your question is also, why can't we do something to prevent uh, this? I'd say there's a couple reasons. Why can't we do anything to stop China's genocide of the Uyghurs? Because it's a nuclear-powered superpower. There's literally nothing we can do that the United States or its allies can do to stop it. We're not going to invade China. We're not going to fight World War III over this. We're not going to nuke them, right? There's nothing we can do. We can name and shame. We can talk about it at the UN, and, and that's about it. There's very li- maybe some sanctions, but there's really not much we can do to force or compel them to stop. If they want to continue, they're going to continue, and we can't stop them. But what about other countries, right? You mentioned Myanmar, and uh, there's also the case of Libya. In some cases, like Myanmar or Burma, I think that we don't do anything because we just it's not in our interest. It's too far away, too expensive, too peripheral to our interests. Why would we? It's expensive. It's hard. We're putting our people at risk for that. And Libya is sort of a great counterexample of why interventionism maybe doesn't work. In Libya, we saw it coming. Gaddafi made very clear his intent to essentially carry out ethnic cleansing against his enemies. He marched on Benghazi and we said, okay, we could do something about this. And so we did. We marched in, we overthrew Gaddafi's government. Gaddafi was killed and then we left. And Libya today is a failed state and a terrorist playground. So we maybe saved some lives at the expense of engineering state failure. So it seems that the only real answer is if you're going to intervene, if if you break it, you buy it. You know, you have to go in full force to do nation building, reconstruction, occupation, and nobody wants to do that. Look at Iraq, right? That seemed, so it seems like we have no good options. You have to have to do Iraq style occupation or a Libya style abandonment or a Myanmar style, just ignore the problem or you're up against China where, you know, it's just too big. So once again, sorry to be pessimistic again, but there's maybe the answer. Okay, so counterexample, the Balkans. The Balkans in the 1990s descended into chaos and there were mass atrocities and there was hundreds of thousands of deaths, 1992 to about 1995, including the massacre at um, one of the refugee camps, Srebrenica. And we, the international community did more or less successfully bring that to an end. There's no more ongoing widespread political violence in the Balkans. It took essentially two interventions in a quarter century of peacekeeping, but the Balkans today are a much better place than they were. Long-term commitment, a lot, it was like a lot of troops per, per population per square mile. 
NATO, the United Nations went in with a, with a large number of troops and there was billions of dollars of reconstruction assistance sustained over a decade and more. So maybe that's what it takes to really do this well. You have to see it happen. And in the Balkans, we let hundreds of thousands of people die before we did anything about it. And then once you decide to intervene, it's, you're, you're signing up for a considerable commitment. I just wrote down all the things you said to do. And I think we did them all in Iraq. So why did we have a different outcome? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the short answer is Iraq was still at war and the Balkans, you know, when we moved in, we essentially enforced a peace and we were never able to achieve that in Iraq. We came close in 2008 to enforcing a peace after at the long end of a very bloody surge. But the Balkans, because we were able to essentially stop the shooting, that bought us a window. And the more we invested in that window, the more we kept the window open. In Iraq, we never got the window open. That's a very short answer. You know, it seems to me that in Iraq, the, the, the people that were the victims of genocide, they never had the opportunity to be a part of their own governance and their own security. And so they were always at the mercy of others for both of those things. And you wonder how the voids that were created by, by removing troops, for instance, weren't replaced by governances because of people that had a reason to one governance didn't have the, the power to, to be a part of it. And, and the people that instead of building real governance were building a corrupt environment that they could make money and pay off the right people and all that took over those, those areas. And so to me, it was a frustration to watch. And I'm sure it's far more complicated than just this, but to know that the Yazidi community hasn't had an election since 2003, and they've never ch- chosen their own mayor. You know, um, I should say Sinjar, because obviously Sinjar is made up of more than just the Yazidi community, but, but areas like that, that literally we, we occupied this country and we didn't enforce democracy for the Yazidi people, the people of Sinjar, the people in the Nineveh Plains, you know, the, the security forces have always answered to Baghdad. It would be the same as if the police department in Philadelphia here answered to the Pentagon. You know, the structures were never set up in a way that gave these people a chance to have a say in their own future. And so it, it wasn't theirs. And so we, we like go in and we, we build this country that's kind of not the people's, it's, it's the political elites that are all in it for money. And then when we leave, there's it just becomes more about them again. And so to, to watch it from, from that standpoint, it's been so disappointing because we missed so much, so many opportunities. And to be honest, often I'll have a conversation with someone about it and they won't, like what I just said made no sense. But I know that you, you get it because you're looking at it through a different set of lenses. <laughs> and you just said, you know, the government exists for the elites. And, and I have to think, oh yeah, just like ours, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's a little bit of truth, <laughs> little bit of truth. <laughs> the elites still make out better, but we also have a whole layer of, of non-elites, a, a part of our government, unlike Iraq. One of the points of departure for this project is to say that it's common among secular elites who you know, are educated in journalism at Columbia or big top schools in the United States to not take as seriously religion as they might. And as a result, that's an overlooked fast the diamond or peace, right? So like if there's a, what is it, 1.9 billion Muslims in the world today, 2.3 billion Christians in the world today, like, you know, it's not a panacea to think about global religiosity more when you're at the State Department or when you're you know, doing the kind of work that Paul's doing in writing or when you're in the, when you're in the military. But, but is, there, is there some way in which taking the religiosity of those on the ground more seriously, honoring it, respecting it, 
tees up a different kind of future and outcome? I would say yes. That that but it has the people on the ground have to have a say in the way that that's going to play out, or it's not authentic, it's not indigenous, and it's not theirs, and they don't have a reason to fight for it. And so I think too often we we've got these prepackaged ideas of of what government looks like, and that's what's so exciting to me about Northeast Syria. And I keep going back to that simply because it's a, 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 a small success. I mean, it's a small area. But nevertheless, it, you know, their government is one. I remember explaining it to a, a U.S. senator and he was like, ugh, like so much government because it's just not his cup of tea. Yeah, that it wasn't meant for you. It's for them. You know, and, and, and I think that we have this idea of what democracy should look like. And maybe maybe some of these areas that, that have a, 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 an automatic inclination towards freedom, we need to give them some some freedom and figuring out what that means for them and how we, and obviously in Northeast Syria, they had the space to do this because of our presence there. So there's no doubt the U S supported them and giving them space, but we didn't build it. They did, you know, and, and we could have given that same sort of space to the Nineveh Plains and Sinjar and to build something that was indigenous. But instead we allowed a structure that, that didn't give people a say, except for a few places there, you've got some little pockets in, in the Nineveh Plains where, you know, you have a mayor and you have a, They've made their own militia that answers the mayor. And you have the little things like this here and there that seem to provide a little bit better conditions than other places. But it's disappointing to see how 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 little that happens. And you wonder if you look at a place like Yemen, you know, Aden has pretty interesting conditions compared to the rest of Yemen. Is there a possibility for some sort of governance that the people build there that could be supported by the international community that supports rights? Are, are there other places we could look at like that that maybe aren't traditional that we can encourage governance that that fills voids that otherwise would be filled with bad actors? I just think we need to look at things completely differently than we've been looking at them, rather than through this textbook way of governance and you know institution building to being really indigenous and letting people that are on the ground make those kind of decisions and and then see how we can give them the space to build something that works for them. So I write a lot about world order. And I think that American national security is inextricably entwined with the culture of world order that we try to build. Whether we intend or whether we're doing it consciously or not, we're always, we're always building one kind of world order or another. And for 80 years, we deliberately tried to build a world order that reflected our values. That's what we call it, the liberal world order. Don't be scared of the phrase liberal. What I mean is just, you know, reflects our values of democracy and human rights. It was a pretty good world order. It's hard not to feel like we're coming to the end of that, in part because many Americans seem to want to bring it to an end. And I think the last president agreed and wanted to bring it to an end. And I think the current president probably does not recognize what is necessary to sustain it. So I'm pretty concerned about the future of our values, such as religious freedom, democracy, human rights, women's rights, Therefore, I'm also concerned about our security, because I think the liberal order is the outer perimeter of American security. If the liberal order goes away, the next order that takes its place is not going to be terribly pleasant. Either anarchy among the great powers or a Chinese-led world order, and it won't be very amenable to our values or our way of life. And it's hard for me to understand how we will be secure, free, or prosperous in that kind of world. So when we see what's happened in the last few months, the Taliban victory in Afghanistan or the reversal of democracy in essentially in Hungary, 
over the past year and a half or a couple of years out really. And in Turkey, Tunisia just last month, right? These are all individually survivable events. They're, they're not the end of the world. But collectively, each of them are straws on the camel's back. And at the end of the day, the camel can only take so much. And after the camel is on the ground, we, we all know that every single straw played its part. And so that is why I grow more and more worried the more straws I see on the camel's back, the camel, uh, the, the, the back of world order, right? How much more of this can we take before the foundations, which have been crumbling, suddenly collapse? I just feel a sense of unease. And I would ask your listeners to pray, to pray that, you know, we would not see the collapse in our lifetimes or our children's lifetimes. You know, that's, that, that, that sometimes keeps me awake at night. And so pray for the vindication of justice and ideals like human dignity and religious freedom and accountable governance and the rule of law. These are precious things. They're great blessings. And they are, I think, far more fragile than many people understand. Very sobering and concerning. I, you know, I go back to young people that care about human dignity, care about justice. So how do we turn those that, that, that the focus on those traits into an understanding of the need to stand for them globally. Certainly, you know, at the commission, um, USERF believes in standing for religious freedom globally. And where we're looking, we don't look in at all. So we're, we're really unique in that respect. And understanding how we're all interconnected and how one country having stronger rights impacts the next country and, and how that's good for, for the global world. And it's also good for me and my family here in the U.S. because it it means more security around the world. And so I, I think the question is, how do we turn people's eyes back to the importance of, you know, the Declaration of Human Rights, the importance of the international community really embracing human dignity, justice, religious freedom? I did just want to mention all that. I had read several articles about Just Warren that you've written, Eric Patterson, others, and I've always been fascinated by it. But always one of those I'll get to read eventually. So I did grab your book, Just War and Order Liberty. And, and I have to say that it was it was really refreshing to see that, that there was a way of looking past conflict to want to see something that ends that has the kind of values that were the reason we got into the war to begin with, that you're not seeing that long view in so many of these um, forever war, quote, unquote, type scenarios where, where there's no end because there is, there's no, the goal hasn't been a better piece. The goal has been paying back the bad guys. And if, and, and that's why there's no governance because the governance has to be a part of building a better peace, you know? And so it, I think part of it is, is when we're working internationally, that we have a different goal of, of the of countries we're working with and to have that longer term stability and, and peace. So I think there's a way forward, but I am, it's frustrating to see, to see Things go in the opposite direction with religious freedom, for sure, with so many countries going in the wrong way. But like I said, I do have hope in the young people of America and the world where I think there is this interconnectedness, this desire for others around the world to prosper, for them to be able to have freedoms that so many of our kids take advantage. They don't understand how easily they could be taken, but yet they look across the world and they see somebody's taken. So they know they can be taken. They don't think they necessarily can be taken here but they understand that, that not everyone has the rights they have. So, you know, perhaps this is a, an opportunity for civil society with academia, with the political world to really come together and try to brainstorm how to make sure that our people 
in America, particularly young people that are the future, really have our, a view of the world looking through, especially how we practice our faith, which, as you said, is, you know, with Muslim Christians and, and all the different religious minorities all living together in peace here in America, how, how what that just says right there about human, human dignity, that everyone has the right to believe or not to believe, to change their religion, to live a life that's consistent with their values. And that's really the life we all want. We, we, we know our, our kids will want that. But, but at some point, you're right, we have to be realistic about the fact that the world is, is, is not looking the way that we were hoping it would look right now. Well, thank you both so very much. Some sober warnings and hopeful ones, too. We'll link, Paul, to your book, Just War and Ordered Liberty, an 18-year worth of commission, probably a couple other books as well. Thanks, you guys, both very much. Faith Angle exists to connect leading mainstream journalists to scholars, soldiers, commissioners, and activists. Thanks for listening.